Hi, and welcome to this bonus episode of The Message Podcast. I'm Sam Ward, the Director of Ministry here at The Message. This is Mates on a Mission, a special audio version of the TV show which is currently broadcasting on Message Live on our Facebook and YouTube channels and on message.org.uk forward slash live. Head over there to check out all our other great programs that we've produced to help equip you for mission. In this episode, I'm chatting with George Verwer. Well, thank you for joining us again. This is Mates on a Mission, our program really that gets alongside some people who have journeyed with the message over a number of years, one of whom is George Verwer, who joins us today, the legend that is George Verwer, founder and former international director of OM, Operation Mobilization. Thank you so much for joining us, George. It's a privilege. Good to see you. Yeah, Say hello to everybody. Yeah. We prefer live audiences because um, you know I'm big into hugging. But <laughs> these are the last time days, you so anyone, George. I'm limited to my wife. <laughs> George, when I think about you, I just think that your life has just been one great adventure with Jesus. Um, but tell us a bit about you in your early life. What was it like growing up? You weren't brought up in a Christian home, so tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate. I'm son of a Dutch immigrant who married someone of more Scottish-English background. But though they were not true believers, they had Christian values, which was much more common in those days than, than today. And so I had a very happy childhood and good relationship with my parents. And my dad would do like anything for me. They, I was big into sports. We had a small fry, you know, little, we call Little League in America baseball, which I was fanatic into, but I wanted to do basketball. There was no league. My father founded the league and, and we birthed, you know, small fry, little, little league, kids 12, 13, 14. Oh. So I had a great uh, father and he, he came to Jesus actually in one of my own meetings after my conversion, but then he sealed it when Billy Graham came back to New York City. But I was, of course, I had big ego and um, my passion was making money, you know, business already when I was 15. <clears throat> and then girlfriends, you know, we didn't jump in bed so quickly those days. We just, you know, we'd kiss up a storm and dance till we fell over. So um, it all changed through the prayers of this one woman who knew that I was causing a bit of a stir in the high school, voted class clown as a freshman. You know, when, when you're a freshman, anything <laughs> to get on the map and get the attention of the girls. Not sure how many want the class clown. But she prayed for me and sent me a gospel. I also saw the godly life of her son in my high school. And then Billy Graham, she also sent a gospel of John with that, which I began to read around the same time pornography, which really could have could have done big damage to me. About that same time, that was pushing into my life very uh, you know, what they call soft, soft porn, but it sure blew me away. And then Billy Graham came to New York City, not for a crusade. That was two years later, a one night meeting. And God met me in that meeting and saved me. And really, he sent me that night, especially back to my high school. And I've been, I haven't really missed a day uh, loving and, and serving him, though the first year was, uh, you know, I was still very much locked into my high school world. I became president of the student council. I wish I had more better memories of how 
I served Christ in that first year. We started prayer meetings. I started sharing my testimony. So I wish I had more info on that. Wow. But I've read the story. I mean, you know, 200 of your friends, your fellow colleagues come to know Jesus in those early years, right? Yeah. In one of my meetings, when I came back from university, this is before I went to Moody. That was later. I went to a couple of years of liberal arts college and then in, in the University of Mexico. And then I moved to Moody. But I came back one Christmas break and hundreds showed up in, in my high school auditorium. It's in that film about my life story, George For Real. And so about 125 stood up. We're not saying they were all conversions, but they professed faith. And then when Billy Graham came a year or so later, many more of my high school friends uh, professed, professed the Lord. But already I was being hit hard with the reality that people make that initial decision. But often if they're not followed up on and they don't get discipled or a living church, a very small percentage uh, really go on long term. And that's always been one of the great disappointments in in my life that people because I've had you know in my own meetings tens of thousands of make professions of faith I'm talking about first believing in Jesus hundreds of thousands have made recommitments but I'm talking about people coming to Jesus you know to see them going on so really OM was born as a discipleship movement more than a missions movement. I'm talking at very early stages to see people really going on for God. And and then the missions, of course, naturally flowed into that. That's still my passion today. It isn't firstly missions. That's there, of course. But to just see people going on for God in whatever their situation, whatever their geographies. And a lot of my books are all written in that direction. Only one is all about uh, global missions. Mm. I love that. I mean, I think that's one of my concerns within the church that we've disconnected uh, mission and evangelism. I know discipleship and evangelism. You know, we've made those two things separate, but yet they come as one and the same. When I read the Gospels, there isn't this you no know, summer call to evangelize and summer call to disciple. Those things are very much rooted together. Would you agree with that? Yeah, of course. And of course, one of my great struggles is discovering how so many don't, they don't share their faith. You know, Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, that's your home city, Jerusalem. For me, it's London now. Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth and um, putting people in different categories. Oh, well, you know, he's an evangelist. Well, yeah, Billy Graham's an evangelist. That's different from you and I sharing our faith, living out the life of Jesus all around us, which has got to involve as you as such good examples in the message trust, getting involved with people locally in community and their suffering as they go through divorce and as they go through depression. And the state of Britain mentally and emotionally right now is 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 much lower than before this virus. And the suicide nobody seems to talk about suicide. It's it's just almost like it's out of control. And of course, it's not the culture to mention it in the newspaper, but literally every day, pretty well, someone takes their own life just here in the UK. Don't even think about the United States and some of the other countries. So I thank the Lord for you demonstrating the reality of Jesus. But then there's a danger people think, yeah, that's the message trust. 
No, this is the whole body. We may not be able to put in as many hours because we have another job, but we can all have a heart for it. We can all be praying and working uh, to uh, see people come to Jesus, to see people encouraged, to see people uh, helped in, in every possible way. Amazing. Love that. And I love how salvation in your life spurred you on to to want to share your faith, want to disciple your friends. So so tell us about um, your your transition from being a student into full-time ministry. You know, you set up Send the Light and that becomes OM. But tell us about those early days of, of going into ministry. What was that like? Well, the first three or four years of my ministry, I was a student. So it was a student movement. We'd go summer and winter, <coughs> first from uh, that college, Maribel College, and then from Moody. <coughs> it was like a mini revival uh, at Wheaton College. And, you know, there were extreme things. I talk about that in my new book. And it was only in Europe. Um, <clears throat> I met my wife at Moody. We don't have time to tell the whole story. But soon here we are in Europe after a short time in Mexico, turning it over to Mexicans and others. And I, the original vision was only extremely unreached countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iran, communist countries, closed countries. I was in Spain, which was a modified dictatorship under Franco, partly because I'd learned Spanish. I had to start somewhere. But my vision was to learn Russian and to reach all of the Soviet Union it was wild, but I got caught by the KGB, that very first effort. Um, and that's when I went for this day of prayer. The work was known as Send the Light. The big part of it was was literature, though be, the discipleship was always right there and reaching everybody with the gospel through every means because I did a radio course as well. But that all changed through that failure in the Soviet Union. When I went for a day of prayer after they finally released me, from, uh, I was caught by the KBG, KGP, accused of being a spy. One other brother was with me. And God gave me the name, Operation Mobilization and the Vision for Britain, the Vision for Europe, uh, who had still come out of the war. My wife's father was killed in the war, so I was very conscious of the war, Germans and French and Dutch and British killing each other. And I thought, can there be a revolution of love? And that, that word came, which ended up the title of one of my books and the name Operation Mobilization, which was only up to then, only a military term. Now it's used all over uh, in the body of Christ, mobilization. Yeah. And so it's just a God thing that he gave this young, needy, new, newly wed, new struggling missionary this vision. And by the next summer, there were 200 people because I moved from Spain to Britain and Britain was just right. God had just prepared Britain, especially universities, for this very strong message, which really offended a lot of people. But it attracted the kind of people we wanted. So in a sense, you offend the ones. <laughs> you don't want that exaggeration. But it attracted people ready for radical lifestyle. By the next summer, we had 2,000. And uh, there's a whole book just about the impact of OM on Cambridge University, a little book that came out, because things were really happening. And we were with the new charismatic movement. And in this booklet about Cambridge, it talks about two controversial things that hit Cambridge at the same time, OM and the charismatic movement. And we made this decision, though that was not our roots. Our background was Billy Graham, you know, more conservative evangelical. 
we decided, important to say, we are not going to be anti-charismatic. We're going to be anti-anybody. And you know, we put out a booklet called Extremism that we couldn't handle all the more extreme phenomena that people were into, but we wanted to reach the world. And so many who were touched with the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Cambridge actually joined OM. And uh, the rest, you know, the rest is history. Wow. So what, what it feels like to me when I listen to your talk is that you go into Russia and that, that feels like it could end your ministry. But it's a, a similar story, whether it's the Apostle Paul or um, Hudson Taylor, you know, or, or, or whatever. You, you, know, you, you make plans, but yet God orders your steps. He redirects you and then gives you this ministry at the point of real opposition and what looks like like the end of the road for the the plans that you had but yet from that first this beautiful vision and and then out of that as well unity unity is such an important thing isn't it you know you don't, it's not who you stand against it's actually who you stand with and what has come out of that is is so much yeah. fruit. om was very saturated in the scriptures and everybody had to listen to these hardball george verber orientation tapes for like 20 years and uh, one or even two of the tapes are all about unity. The amazing things about those tapes when um, I'm sure I had some funny wrong thinking is that didn't get into many of the tapes because I was very strong. We're mainly going to go through the Bible. So we went through the Bible on seven major themes. I had one or two other speakers and we used Billy Graham's famous message from Urbana years ago as part of that orientation. So this is one of my concerns about modern short term, though I'm still in favor of it, of course, is that often there's not much preparation, not much training. Yeah. But missionaries who worked with us said, if you don't give them the training, even though it was short, a week intensive training before the summer, for a year it was at least a month because we were a training program. We need training to be in the training program. And so they said, if the people haven't been through the, your orientation and your conferences, don't send them to us. And today, there's a fast track to short missions, and some of them only last 10 days, and uh, it, it needs to be looked at. The Lord, through the virus, has closed a good part of all of that down. Imagine the money just saved on air tickets. But of course, that's the theme of my book, Messiology, how we make a mess, and yet God keeps, God keeps working. So short-term got more messy. One summer, there was over 1 million people around the world, but I believe God was using even these even people maybe in my view weren't disciples weren't radical weren't trained prayer life all these things that i thought are basic god somehow used them but also the devil sometimes know how to know how to use them so it's yeah, it's, yeah. people want it all in different boxes but when you're my age you can't put it in boxes as easily as when you're young that's true that's true so yeah i mean you talked earlier about literature and how important that's been whether you've written your own i mean if anyone's ever heard you speak they'll have probably been invited to the bookstall where you've brought boxes full of literature that you recommend that's been important uh, in steering and shaping your life. But, uh, you know, talk to me about the importance of literature and tell us a bit about the new book you're working on. That's the book we pushed the most and was required reading in OM for, for many, many years, Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. When he died, he left it all sort of in my hands, the Roy Hessian Trust. I've now given my books to the Roy Hessian Trust for various reasons. Um, so I'm not mainly pushed my own books. I never wanted to write a book. 
I was always pushing other people's books because they so helped me. I went through a period of agnosticism at university where people were just throwing away Bible faith, just 80% of all the students, just through the liberal Bible teacher who shows the Bible's full of contradictions, but you know, it's a nice book. But a few of us held, you know, to the word of God, we were classified as fundamentalists. I did, I'm just a young Christian. I didn't even know what these terms meant, which a term I've now abandoned. But books really meant so much to me. And I thought, how can I be so blessed, especially Billy Graham's book, Peace with God, right after my conversion, and not want to just bless others. But I soon, actually, from the beginning, was just as convinced about film. One of the first things I did after conversion was show Christian films in the local school. Um, and so we've always been involved with film, but that doesn't have the visibility that books have. And uh, I guess books, you know, became more dominant for, for various reasons. But I think today, and I was so thrilled that eventually there was a film of my own life story Though I've pushed more C.T. Studd's uh, story. It's a relatively new film. So anyway, I could go on and on, but I think that, that's enough on that point. When's your new book out? Yeah, my new book will be out by the end of November. Right. And it, it will be wholesale, wholesale by that uh, 10, what's it called? 10 of those. 10 of those will be wholesaling my book, maybe CLC. I won't have a British publisher because I want, I want a total freedom to do whatever I want with this book give it free. Um, and so I've gone a different route and published it through our own publishing house, which is a very large operation in India. We'll ship all over the world from there. The, the rupee is very weak right now. So the pound is like a giant wow. against the rupee. And of course, we have 2000 staff. India is still our biggest work, but became a church movement. And some were unhappy with that, especially some staff that we also had to we had to ask them to leave and that got some people very upset. But I'm very committed to the work in India. It's, it's the, the Dignity Freedom Network is part of that. Good Shepherd Churches, couple thousand of them. And we were taught, we were taught at Moody in the missions books, missionaries, once a lot of people come to Jesus and churches are born, it needs to be turned over to them. We don't run it from uh, London or from New York. Uh, and yet when you do that, it can be very painful for old timers who don't want to change. I don't know if you've met any of those. They're called grace killers. Yeah. So when we think about OM, it's hard not to think about that amazing ship that you've got. Tell us at what point you bring a ship into the ministry and uh, tell us about the journey and what, what is it up to right now? Yeah, of course, there's a whole, there's three books just about the ship. It's it's 50 years ago, my wife and I and family were moving to Rotterdam to live on the first ship. We purchased it October 15th, 50 years ago. And it was a high risk. I had opposition. It took me four years just to win because my leadership was more by consensus. And um, then I had to find a crew. I needed some of the crew before I get a ship. So it was uh, the Lord just undertook and we got that ship. And the, I would I traveled with my family. I was director of the ship at that time, working my way out of that quickly. Um, we went around Africa and the response was greater than we expected. Um, so almost very, within a, a year or two, 
Uh, we got the idea of getting a second ship. First was Lagos. Soon we had Dulas, much bigger ship. Soon it was right here in London in 1977. Lloyd-Jones actually came and wow. spoke on it to the dismay of some of his followers. But um, it's, it's about 15 ministries rolled into one. The book exhibit attracts a crowd, Christian and secular educational books, including top VIPs, sometimes a prime minister, sometimes helicopters flying over. So one of the visions, I had about 10 different reasons I went down this road, very much built around what God was doing in India, and that the route to India overland, which we were famous for using, might close. That wasn't a major reason, but these are all factors. And the fact that overland, I made everybody redeem the time. And so when you're traveling, you've got to be listening to tapes. You've got to be trained. And of course, listening to tapes, dust blowing into your face, uh, roads that weren't even paved. I made the trip myself. And the idea of ship, we can be studying the whole time and traveling. Again, that's just one of about 10 different visions and ideas that came to me. And it allowed a lot of flexibility but conferences and impacting people. We realized we didn't have a Billy Graham. We didn't have someone who a lot of people were gonna come and just listen to, but we wanted to get our message out. And I thought, you know, if we have a ship and we come into a port, people are gonna come. And so our ship really became our Billy Graham. It became our evangelist. And of course, 100 million people uh, have been reached, I think over, you know, over this uh, 50 years, at least 100 million, at least half of those have been up the gangway. Wish I'm better at memorizing all, but it's, uh, and, but this is a crisis here for the ship. We got 40 new recruits, even though they knew what we're doing is very limited. Uh, going into a port, thousands of people, book exhibit, that's all closed. We're doing humanitarian work. Invited by YWAM, who have small ships and they have one in the Bahamas, they say, come and help us in this island where there's hardly any infections, but people have had everything destroyed by a storm. That's where we are right now um, in humanitarian work. We've always done some humanitarian, so maybe in the future that's gonna have to shift, but in the present mode, even that has great limitations. So we'd really appreciate prayer. And the, the roots of the ship are very much here in the UK more than any other nation. My first captain was a UK guy so the guy that actually sailed as captain was an amazing uh, Norwegian. So OM, of course, is, was totally international from almost day one. Love it. Love it. What an incredible story. So, you know, OM, 57 years old, I think, this year. And you've been, you know, you led it for 40 years. Talk to us, to, talk to us about the secret of longevity and leadership. Like, how do you keep going when things are tough? We already had our 60th. Um, anniversary of OM. It started in 57 when oh, the first three of us went to Mexico. But the explosion took place in Europe in 62. It was quite small before that. Mexico, when that was really taken off, and then Spain. But th that's irrelevant anyway. But go back to your question. Sorry. Yeah. Talk to us about the longevity of leadership. How do you keep going when things are tough? Yeah. I mean, leadership training was, was the bottom line. Um, we had these big leadership conferences all over UK. I'm still getting letters. Just had one recently, email from a person completely turned upside down at a leadership conference in Birmingham. 
And I wrote a leadership manual before I wrote any other books. I wrote a leadership manual. So leadership training was tied in with wanting to see people fill the spirit, experiencing, you know, Calvary Road, the cross, just the basics, the basics of the Christian life. And so it comes together, you know, commit those things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Mm -hmm. So even though leadership training was important, we, we allowed a wide range of people to get into it. Some of them never dreamed to be leaders, uh, but probably 25,000 OM graduates are in leadership around the world. Of the 200,000 that have been with OM approximately, and some of them have started major, major mission movements. Over 150 movements are traced back. So you have OM as an organization. That is not my main passion, never was, still isn't. You have what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so all these little sort of OM babies or whatever you want to call them, that's all part of my life now, being in touch with them. I'm in touch with over 1,000 people, sending them books, keeping them up to date, listening to them and giving away money. My greatest passion now next to prayer and just encouraging people and preaching the gospel is to raise finance. And yesterday I had one of the biggest gifts of the entire year. And so you, you got me really at the right time. <laughs> and Andy Hawthorne, I know he has to raise a lot of money. I trust you're helping him. Yeah, yeah. So shall I give him your details? And he's given me some. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Yeah, and actually, that's that's all flows from ministry, doesn't it? I love how you've you've birthed ministry from your ministry and then continue to bless others through raising funds. It's just incredible. Uh, I, I love it. I love these stories. I wish we had more time. But to finish off, would you tell us what do you feel like God is saying to you right now? Like what is on your heart that like God is really, really just um, exciting you for? God, especially in the last two years, has been telling me to be a better husband. My wife is not well, and things have changed. And I made that decision before this lockdown thing. So for us, lockdown has been a blessing. We feel bad saying that because we know so many are suffering. But I am now at more time with my wife at any period of my 60th year, our 60th year of marriage. And... Um, God put that on my heart before he then forced, you know, part two, he forced me. So that's my my passion. And I think we, we can't summarize things with one line or, you know, what's your one vision? Because life is complicated. We have children, we have grandchildren, we have six great-grandchildren. One of them has extreme brain damage, one of the great-grandchildren, and that's uh, the son of Jonathan, the most on fire of my kids grandson came to Jesus on the ship, married a Swiss girl. He's just got his Swiss citizenship. So I have three Swiss great grandkids. And then the others, the three Americans over in the, in the red state of Idaho. So, <laughs> so you can't put everything in a box, but as far as missions, number one, I had total joy leaving all leadership, total closure, including advisory, no committees, no closet, just prayer, raising money, encouraging people, ministering outside of OM. And I've ministered to thousands in these days, mainly outside of OM through Zoom, but some within OM as well, and, uh, and then raising the finance. But one of the things I feel God wants me to keep voicing, which does upset people, is we need to be global people. We need to think globally. 
one of the most tragic things in the church in the midst of many positive things here in Britain is people are becoming more nationalistic, more British focused. You look at the newspapers, increase everything about Britain, everything about the virus. That is not the way for disciples of Jesus. We're into Acts 1-8, not Daily Telegraph, page 2. And Acts 1-8, you should be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. British people, English people, especially Scottish just as much, Welsh just as much, Northern Irish just as much, we're very much embedded in our country and our culture. I'm doing a 60, uh, 57 year survey in these, all these countries called Great Britain. 95% of everything British people do is for Britain. It's for Britain. Money, time, energy, talent, gifted people, everything. 95% is for Britain. 5% for the rest of the world. And so a lot of those things people do for Britain, all kinds of ministries, hallelujah. But they've got 95%. So I want to represent this minority, even if it irritates people, <laughs> and say, look, what about the rest of the world? And what other nations are suffering now compared to the suffering here, which is pushed in our face every day, all these horror stories of people suffering here. And I'm, of course it's valid. It's small next to what people are suffering. And I just finished reading the article in National Geographics. The poverty level has jumped across the world with all the suffering that brings, including thousands of children dying simply on the water crisis. So, Whatever few years the Lord gives me, I want to just keep voicing. What about the rest of the world? What about Yemen and Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and North Korea? What about Eritrea and Sudan and Libya and Mali? All these places where suffering is off the chart. Can't we give more finance? Can't we pray more for these places? Can't we mobilize others and give up, give up some of our... Uh, our young people, the Anglicans especially, they have a lot of talented Anglican people. I love them. I love their churches. But very, very few are really global thinkers. You know, they're just locked in to England, the Church of England, the culture. I just pray the Lord will drop a spiritual bomb on the church here and we'll see the impact throughout the world. Meanwhile, thank the Lord for the 5%. And one of the things I've learned in my Christian life, lower the aim or die. And so I'm not aiming fully for what I was aiming 60 years ago, but I'm not going to give up the fight. Incredible. I love it. Thank you so much, George. Thank you for sharing your heart, your story. We're going to continue to pray for you, pray for your ships, pray for your wife, and pray for this ongoing ministry, which is going to continue to your last breath. I can see and sense that. But God bless you, George. And Don't forget like Messiology. I want to ask you, because my only question have you read my book, Messiology? It used to be called More Drops. Of course, yeah, yeah. You read it? I have, yeah. Wow, you're going to get a free copy of Toxic Perfectionism. <laughs> Come on, write my name in it and then put some of that money inside as well. That'd be great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> God bless, George. Take care. Okay. I'm going for lunch. Thank you. See <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not share it with a friend? And don't forget to check out all the great programs we're producing for Message Live on YouTube, Facebook, or at message.org.uk forward slash live.